Today's scripture reading is from James 2, 1 through 17. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there. Or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You, You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become transgressors of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can the faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for for the body. What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, it is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks again, Jeffrey. Good morning. Hope your holiday weekend is going well. Uh, Maybe some of you get the big three-day weekend and a little bit of extra sleep. Uh, possibly some of you will be joining me tomorrow morning for the uh, Solidarity March uh, in commemoration of Martin Luther King's um, uh, contribution uh, to the civil rights movement and to the betterment of society because of it. Uh, that's 10 a.m. All the details are in your bulletin if you want to join me and a few others, uh, actually a lot of others. But uh, today we're starting a new series. And um, It makes sense, doesn't it, if you're starting a new series on the book of James to uh, start in the second chapter instead of the first? Uh, That's what we're doing, and we're doing that because today is recognized by many churches uh, around the world as Sanctity of Life Sunday, and so today we're going to talk about justice and the sanctity of all human life, and I'll start with a couple of um, really uh, endearing stories. Uh, and both have to do with teenage boys who have Down syndrome. And the first of these boys uh, was, was told a story along with a few others. The first of these boys with Down syndrome uh, took his father's cell phone captive and went off into another room and started texting random people from his father's contact list. And the text was the same uh, for everybody. And the text simply said, love you. And for the rest of the day, his father started receiving texts from friends, relatives, bosses, employees, mild acquaintances, (laughs) saying, gee, I didn't know you cared so much. Love you too. 
The second friend uh, was, uh, I was having lunch and then a meeting with him at his house uh, just last week, and he, he also has a teenage son with Down syndrome, and school was out. The boy came home. He walked right through the door, immediately took his shirt off, started walking through the house topless, made sort of a Cosmo Kramer Seinfeld entrance to let his presence be known, and he wanted one thing, actually two things together, his iPad and his headphones, and and he found them, he put them on, he went, you know, topless upstairs, and within a minute, you could hear him bellowing uh, from the top of his lungs with complete joy, songs from the Wiggles. Both of these young men are wonderful, magnificent expressions of the best of humanity, and both of these young men are part of a population that is strategically targeted for extinction. Over 90% of children in utero who have Down syndrome are terminated before they breathe their first breath. Not all doctors recommend that course of action, but those who do use the quality of life argument. Because of this special need that this person will have, and because of the quality of life diminishment that he or she will experience, let's have mercy and spare them the experience of living. It's called the quality of life argument, except that studies have shown that the happiest people in the human community, by a landslide, are people with Down syndrome. And so it's really not the quality of life argument. That really is merely a euphemism for the value of life. Where there is a partiality that says there are certain people, the privileged people, the ones who get the rights, the privilege, the trajectory forward, the advantages, and then there are those who don't. You know, Pope Francis, uh, not too long ago, made a statement with respect to the dignity of all human beings, and he said this, all life has inestimable value, even the weakest and most vulnerable, the sick, the old, the unborn, and the poor are masterpieces of God's creation, made in his own image, destined to live forever, and deserving of the utmost reverence and respect. And so the text in front of us, the book in front of us, written by the Apostle James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, grew up with Jesus, you know, talk about something to live up to in your big brother. He's the half-brother of Jesus, and at this point in time, he is the leader, the pastor, the chief pastor of the church in Jerusalem. After Pentecost, he's a large church pastor, and what he is trying to do is help people in the church understand that your vertical love for God is only as good as your horizontal love for your neighbor, your neighbor being anyone you come into contact with who is either near or in need or both. And so the title of our series is this, James the ethics of grace. And it's based upon the seminal sort of central statement, the thesis statement of his letter, and that is this. Show me your faith with your works. Because faith without works is a corpse. It's dead in the ground. And 
One of the things that concerns James deeply here is what he calls the sin of partiality or favoritism, where a hierarchy of human value has been constructed within the community of God, if you could imagine that, where certain people are privileged. They get the attention. They get access to the resources. They are the target of the hospitality ministry. Let's make sure we look for the rich and famous coming through the door. Let's make sure we look for the people of note whose names we can drop at parties coming through the door so that we can give them special attention. Here, you sit in this special seat right here. But when the poor come in, they're disregarded. They're dismissed. They're disregarded. They say, they, they're told, oh, you're welcome here, but uh, you can only have crumbs from the table, not a seat at the table. You sit over here because we're saving this seat for somebody else. In fact, you can just sit at my feet. How about that? Isn't it great that you get to be here? And James unequivocally, unequivocally says this is out of line with the gospel. And, and then he proceeds in, in this text and the rest of the book to make the argument that grace from God does not lead to less emphasis on law, but more and truer and deeper emphasis on law. And he gives us a spiritual ethic, a social ethic, and a level ground or a level, level playing field to wrestle with. First, the spiritual ethic. What James is calling for here in the entire book is a comprehensive rather than a partial surrender to God. In verse 8, he refers to the law of God or the commands of God as the royal law. It's the law of a king which comes with it a very explicit understanding that we are the subjects. He makes the rules. He sets the trajectory. We get behind it. We obey. We align with that which our king says and declares is life-giving and an expression of his character. And then a couple of the Ten Commandments are mentioned, actually, in verse 11. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. And, of course, the Pharisee, the self-satisfied religious Pharisee and all of us will say, yeah, that's right. The problem with the world is people who commit adultery, people who have bad sexual ethics, and people who kill the innocent. And there will be entire political campaigns rallied around those two statements in less than a year, by the way. People too soft on the law. That's what's wrong with the world. That's what's wrong with the church these days. And then praise the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. Thank you, my God, that I am not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, murderers, adulterers. And this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. I have all the spiritual disciplines down. I'm loyal to all of the spiritual disciplines. I'm at church every week. I read my Bible every day. I pray. Uh, and I do all of these things. I'm not like other men. Thank you, God. And James says, oh, but you are like other men. In fact, you are vulnerable to being among the worst of all men. Because what your partiality demonstrates is that, is that there's a significant disconnect between you and the kingdom of God. Because, as James says in verse 10, if you keep the entire law of God, but you stumble at just one point of it, you're guilty of breaking all of it. If you don't understand that, you haven't understood Christianity yet. If you think it's your good 
record and resume and your virtues that gets you in the right with God, you've missed it entirely. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Paul says this, let the one who thinks he stand, take heed, pay attention, lest he fall. Examine yourselves, he would say, to see whether you really are in the faith. James says in verse 13, and this is chilling, judgment without mercy will be shown to those who show no mercy. And what he's addressing here again is the favoritism, the partiality, the pecking orders, the hierarchies of human value. Using the quality of life argument as a euphemism for the value of life argument. He's basically saying, look, favoritism, partiality, assigning more value to one person than another, assigning less value to one person than another is as evil as adultery and murder. Anne Lamott says this. She says, you can be certain that you have created God in your own image when God hates all the same people that you do. There are a couple of kinds of hatred. There is the pharisaical kind of hatred, which is more aggressive. It it resembles bullying. Uh, There's a lot of shame to it. Shame on you, shame on you, shame on them. What's wrong with the world is other people. But then there's also the passive form of hatred that, that James is going after here, and it's the hatred of neglect. It's the hatred of overlooking and ignoring and acting as if the problems of the poor are somebody else's problem, even those that are right there under your nose. What James is doing is he, he is going directly for the jugular. He's going right between, square between the eyes against the Pharisees' middle-class conservative morality. May I say that? Adultery and murder, the worst sins of all. But he's saying, don't think for a minute, he's speaking to the Pharisee in us, don't think for a minute that the presence of conservative virtue gets you off the hook for your lack of liberal virtue. Both matter. Both. God has chosen, it says, those who are poor in the eyes of the world, those who are on the margins, the alien, the stranger, the refugee, the minority, the poor, the weak, the widows, the orphans, those with special needs, those who are targeted for extinction. God has chosen them. Chosen them. Blessed are the poor, Luke says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew adds, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so James, on the basis of these realities in verse 6, says, you insult the poor, and by insulting the poor, you insult their maker and yours as well. You show yourself to not be in line with the gospel that you profess. So here's kind of the takeaway. Actual Christianity, real Christianity, and there's no season better than a political season to bring this out. Actual, real, authentic, true, from Scripture, all of it, Christianity is going to offend everybody. It's going to upset everyone. It's going to upset people to the left. It's going to upset people to the right. It's going to tick you off. Because Jesus is ultra-conservative, and he's ultra-liberal, and he's also neither. He won't fit your box. He won't say, I'm on your side. He won't say, I'll vote with you. He won't.
He's ultra-conservative. If you break one part of the ethics, if you break one part of the law of God, you've broken all of it. You're guilty as charged. He's ultra-liberal. Your vertical faith in God must result in horizontal love. I love what my, one of my predecessors, Charles McGowan, said to me once. He said, this is what I think about sound doctrine, Scott. The demons have sound doctrine, and so just the presence of sound doctrine, sound biblical theology really doesn't mean a whole lot. And, and he said, Scott, I, I really look at, at, at sound doctrine like this. It's like the skeleton of your faith. You need it. It's essential. It's important. That conservative virtue of sound biblical doctrine is absolutely and utterly vital because without the skeleton, the body is just a blob. And yet, if the skeleton is the only thing that you're able to see about a body, if the skeleton is the only thing that you're able to see about somebody's faith, it means one of two things, malnourished or dead, underfed or a corpse in the ground. If sound Biblical doctrine does not lead to the love of the stranger and the refugee and the minority and the poor and the weak and the widow and the orphan. By the way, this is why so much of the money that comes into this church goes out to the poor and the refugee and the widow and the orphan and those on the margins and those who are victims of the sex trade and so on. This is why. Because if sound doctrine does not lead to that kind of attention to the least of these, the doctrine is not sound. Spiritual ethic is this. God wants all of you. The ethic is comprehensive, this ethic of life that the Scriptures call for. If you're on the more liberal side, that means you've got to care for the human in the womb, the image bearer of God inside the womb. If you're on the more conservative side of things, that means you have to zealously care for the person outside of the womb. It's comprehensive. And that's why it's going to tick off everybody in this room, and I'm going to get 50 emails about it tomorrow. And some of you are going to call me a, you know, a, a, a left-wing Marxist, and, and, and some of you are going to call me a right-wing extremist, and I, I hope so, because they call Jesus those things. I'm not claiming to be in the same category as Jesus. Far be it from me to do that, but his message is this. I am conservative, I'm liberal, and I'm neither, and I'm both. And I call you to wrestle with this as the subjects of my royal law, all of it. It leads to a social ethic, this spiritual ethic. And the social ethic is this. The net worth of the poor man is equal to the net worth of the rich man. In verse 8, he says to the rich, to the privileged, love your neighbor as you love yourself and show no partiality because you are equal to every neighbor of yours. The case study here is the person who comes into your midst who's wearing shabby, ratty, not even worthy of the thrift store rack clothes. And what James is saying is that smell of body odor, that smell of nicotine, that smell of urine, that smell of liquor that's so pronounced, that, dear friends, is the aroma of dignity. And it's nothing less than that. Martin Luther King Jr. said this in his speech, The American Dream. The whole concept of the imago Dei, or the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. This gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget that 
There are no gradations. There are no pecking orders. There are no hierarchies of value in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day we will all learn that. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every person. Or as C.S. Lewis put it, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object that will ever be presented to your senses. And by the way, he's not just referring to the poor here. He's also referring to the wealthy and privileged. If James dismissed and said, you sit over there, to the wealthy and privileged, he would be contradicting the very teaching that he's trying to get across. No partiality with God. None. That's why he calls the privileged people that he's rebuking beloved brothers. He's not excluding anyone because the gospel demands equal treatment to all. James' audience is the privileged class who are giving lip service to the underserved. Their talk about mercy and justice is a big talk, but they're showing none of what is coming out of their mouth. They're demonstrating none of it. It's right there, verse 16 where the rich are saying to the poor, go, I wish you well, keep warm and fed, and then do nothing to help satisfy the need. The the contemporary term for this is slacktivism. Outrage. Outrage on social media and in small group settings and in conversations about justice and mercy for the poor, but not giving a dime or a moment, or an effort that resembles any true interest in lifting the burdens off of the burdened. This was Dr. King's big issue in the civil rights movement, and it's it's reflected in a letter that I, I actually read every year about this time of year on Martin Luther King weekend, just to remind myself of this no partiality imperative from the Scriptures. Because, you know, Dr. King in his letter from a Birmingham jail talked about his frustration with people like me, white pastors in the South, who gave lip service in private meetings to how awful and unjust the treatment of African American men, women, and children was. But publicly, from behind their pulpits, pulpits said nothing. And he writes and he says, this, is, this should not be so. While, while, while we have bricks with threatening notes thrown through our windows at nights, while, night, while our little girls get bombed to death in their churches, when our brothers and sisters get burned on the stake and shot in the gut in the light of day, and there's no justice for it, And you say nothing. You say nothing. And injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So something has to be done. So Tim Keller has a a commentary, uh, you know, that that, that he spoke, and it's it's, it's in writing somewhere as well, kind of a transcript. But he's making an observation about what Martin Luther King did not say. Because what you could do is you could look at the passivity you could look at the passive hatred 
and self-protection of people like me in the civil rights movement. And you can say, this is cause to dismiss Christianity altogether. But, but Keller says, Dr. King didn't say that. He didn't say to white Christians, get rid of your Christian beliefs so that you can be more just. He didn't say that Christianity is a bad religion because of how white pastors are treating black people. What Dr. King did say, Tim Keller says, is what we need is not less Christianity, but more and truer and deeper Christianity. This is what's going on in the first century church that James is speaking so forcefully to. He says in verse 3, you give the honored seat to the rich and the famous, and then you say to the poor, you stand over there or you sit here at my feet. And this should not be so. N.T. Wright, commenting on this passage of Scripture, said this, James is saying, do not let the world leave its dirty smudge on you, church. The world is always assessing people, sizing them up, putting them down, establishing a pecking order, and God who sees and loves all alike wants the church to reflect His generous universal love in how it behaves. Here's what he's saying. The appeal of Christianity to the culture is not figuring out how we can be more like the culture so we can be seen as relevant. The appeal, the, the, precisely the appeal of Christianity to the surrounding culture is how different the city of God is than the city of man, is how different the society of God is than the society of man. Because inside the society of God, inside the church, inside the city on the hill that Jesus talked about, inside the lighthouse, the light of the world that Jesus said we would be, is justice. Think about the first century in in, in the Jewish world, those who were on the margins, those who were left out, those who were said, sit at my feet or go over there, were the little children and the poor, both of whom should actually be the ones standing in the position of rabbi while the rest of us sit at their feet because it's the little children that teach us what the nature of the the kingdom of God is. And we will never enter the kingdom of God unless we enter it as little children do, dependent and helpless. Same with the poor. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven cannot be yours until your posture is congruent with theirs. This is precisely why The gospel is so hard, so offensive, so unnerving to smug, self-satisfied moralists who behave well, keep the rules, obey the laws, fast twice a week, give a tenth of all they get, are not like other men. And this is why Jesus said, it's not the righteous or the healthy that I came for, but the sinful and the sick. And this is why he said to the self-satisfied religious people, the pimps and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God while you sit there in your isolated corner and read your Bible on your way to hell. To the self-sufficient, radical grace, which is the only kind of grace that there is, is ho-hum. Thanks, but no thanks. Don't need that. But to the needy, 
to those who know they are weak. The gospel is a breath of fresh air. The gospel levels the ground, and the gospel will not electrify us until we see the poor as our equals and as such lift the poor off the floor and give them the best seat. And and until we see ourselves as equal to the poor and put ourselves on the floor and take the seat way over there. That's how the kingdom works. That's what Christ did. He took up a basin and a towel and he washed feet. What James is saying is that this poor man's exterior, the scent of body odor, urine, liquor, and nicotine is representative of the interior of the Pharisee in all of us. Jesus called it whitewashed tombs. He's talking to self-satisfied, Bible-reading, church-going Pharisees, and he says this, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside. Your act looks so together, but inside it's corroded. Inside there is sewage there. There's a stench. This poor man that you're sending over there is a representative of your interior life. You know, verses 15 and following, if if somebody who is poor or on the margins or weak or a widow or an orphan or somebody with special needs is nearby and you do nothing, what good is it? Faith without action is dead. And, and, and so that begs the question for me, oh my gosh, who can stand? You know, it's, it's, it's like that moment when Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And the disciples are like, oh my goodness, who can be saved then? And then Jesus, thanks be to God, just like he does here, he, he says, he says, What's impossible for man is possible with God. Just like he says, after he says, judgment without mercy will be shown to those who show no mercy. Then he says, but my mercy, it triumphs over even that judgment. And that is why James calls them beloved brothers, even in the middle of a sharp rebuke. There's hope even for the worst of us. So, so I'm in New York City a few years ago, um, walking down the other Broadway on my way to work. And I pass by, as I did every day, a deli right there on the corner. And there is a homeless woman, as was often the case, sitting there on the ground at my feet as I approached outside the deli. And she said, excuse me, sir, but can you buy me some food? And I said, well, of course, I'd be happy to buy you some food. And, and so I went in. I, well, I told her, I said, I'm going to go buy you a bagel and I'll get you, would you like some coffee? And, and she said, well, I, I would actually prefer egg salad, please. And And my initial internal response, and thankfully I I didn't say anything, but my internal response was, well, how ungrateful. I offer you a bagel and you you want to upgrade. I offer you an 85-cent bagel and you want to upgrade to a $6.95 thing of egg salad. Would you like caviar with that too? Is is how my dirty heart, my urine-infested heart, is processing this conversation. And then I come out with the egg salad and the coffee, and she says, you know what, I'm so sorry I had to ask for the egg salad, but my teeth are so corroded and so rotten, and it hurts so much for me to chew anything solid that the only thing I can consume is really, really soft stuff and liquids. Who's the poor person in that conversation? Who's the weak and wounded and sick and sore person without a home in that conversation. That conversation demanded that I consider that judgment without mercy will be shown to those with no mercy. 
It demands that I ask with all of my credentialed master of divinity and ordination um, blessings as a pastor. It invites me to ask the question when Jesus talked about the priest and the Levite who passed by on the other side of the road when a person was right there in front of them in need. Was he talking about me? Was he warning me? See, what James is getting at is the same thing that Jesus was getting at in the Good Samaritan parable. Not until we are crushed by the sight of the mercy that God requires of us will we be fit for the kingdom of God ourselves. Not until, as Isaiah says, we see even our very, very best good deeds as filthy rags in comparison to the holiness and righteousness that God requires. Who can stand? If there's any hope for us, if there's going to be any hope for us, we have to go on spiritual welfare, in other words, is what he's saying. We have to see that without grace, we are poor and shabby. I love the way that Steve Brown put it. A true Christian is one who self-identifies as a beggar and who humbly stumbles along to tell other beggars where the bread is. That's what a Christian is. Where is the bread? I think the better question here is who is the bread? Jesus is the bread of life, the manna that God sent from heaven. Verses 1 and 13, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, whose mercy triumphs over judgment. How did he triumph over judgment with this mercy? He got on the ground and lifted us up as he was lifted up on a cross. Gave his life for us. Went starving and thirsty in order to give us a seat at his table. You know, Isaiah 53 talks about how Jesus became shabby, repulsive, like human trash. And the aroma of his body odor, the aroma of urine and liquor up there on that cross. Remember the last drink that they gave to Jesus when he said, I thirst, was rotten wine, vinegar. The aroma, that aroma from Jesus' cross becomes the sweet scent of our redemption, the marring and obliterating of Jesus' glory there becomes the restoration of our glory. Here are the lyrics of the hymn that we're going to sing in a few moments after the supper. I want to ask you, do you identify with this? Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is willing doubt no more. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness, all the fitness, 100% of the fitness that he requires is to feel your need of him. Does this describe you? Is this how you identify? Then come up off the ground and take a front seat at his table. Does your heart resist this? And get on the ground. Start there. Thanks be to God.